This is Get Uncomfortable, the podcast where we talk race, politics, and so much more with me, Adam Smith. The cultivation of hemp has a long and complicated history in the United States. Long before the United States became a country in its own right, Black and slave folks were responsible for the cultivation of hemp for its value in the production of rope, sails, and clothing. But since the Mexican Revolution, the use of marijuana as a medical tool and recreational aid has successfully been used to other our non-white brothers and sisters. Today, discussion of legalizing marijuana use in the United States is gaining steam. But for those who have been on the wrong side of the law, the conversation around legalizing may come too late to be of any true assistance. In this episode, we're joined by Jason Soule, Jason is a formerly incarcerated abolitionist who has been a criminal justice educator for over 12 years. His journey to becoming an abolitionist is truly inspiring and is a clear demonstration of how our society continues to disenfranchise Black folks for drug offenses even after they've served time. Jason, welcome. Thank you for taking the time. Let's get uncomfortable, man. How are you? Doing amazing. Doing amazing. Family well. I'm, I'm handling the semester well. I'm locked in. So fall usually my, my time of year. So I'm doing well. Get you grinding, right? Get you grinding. Well, you talk, we want to kind of center and level set the conversation about um, cannabis, right? And marijuana. So can you talk, I know the roots, many of our listeners may know the roots of criminalizing marijuana, but a lot of that started you know, during the Nixon administration, when Nixon decided, you know, he he didn't like the anti-war people and he didn't like the black folks. So let's just criminalize the two things that they do. And the Chicanos were in there too, right? And let's criminalize those two things. And that's just kind of whether it was Clinton, whether it's been Bush one or Bush two, any of them, that's kind of just been the modus operandi, me living in Kentucky, live around the biggest drug in the world, bourbon, right? Um, But the realities around why cannabis marijuana was criminalized as opposed to other things, can you kind of give us a history lesson, Professor, level set that for us as our starting point? I mean, if you, I mean, I could point to a few films that are really helped too, but um, if you watch The House I Live In, or even 13th, you can see it like in real terms with imagery and all of that. But it was like everybody was using marijuana. I mean, and, and you got to look at it just from a racial standpoint throughout. It was like in California when Asians were creating the railroad, it was like they start criminalizing them for using opium when most of the people using it were white women who stayed at home. So it was like always an effort. They said marijuana will make you kill your mother. That was the that, that was the ad. So it's like always been moral panic around people of color using when white people know they're using too. So it's really always been like I think um Michelle Alexander, who wrote the New Jim Crow, she said, you know, 
when the war on drugs hit, and you got to think that was my era. When 82 hit with Reaganomics and all that, that's when it really, man, it was the worst. I was born in 78. So that's all I saw was criminalization. All I saw was them throwing us in cages. My uncle went to prison at 12 and came home at 18. And they threw him in there with grown men. This is my mother's youngest brother. So it's like, it's not just a subject for me, man. Like I've been deep for cannabis, which led to a warrant that led to me going to prison for 40 months. So I, it, it's, it's not something I think about and recollect. The past is the present. Well, and it's, it's not just history, it's, it's your story, right? So can you give us, you kind of touched on that, bro. Can you give us a little bit more about your experience growing up, kind of following in that Harriet Tubman abolitionist movement? Give us a little rundown of your stuff, of your story, some of the impacts of some of the anti-Blackness, racism, those kind of things on your story, but also your current work um, and the work that you intend to do in the future? Um, first, I'm from Chicago, born and raised. You think about redlining, you think about um, crack epidemic, you think about us not owning any airplanes or any of that stuff, but it's like cocaine and crack everywhere. No jobs, no resources. If you Google mapped where I grew up, you'd be like, dang, man, because it's still pretty much trenches. I mean, I do what I can, but it's the trenches. Everybody has asthma, so none of us can breathe. Losing classmates in sixth grade from asthma attacks, like dying. So it was like death was around us, incarceration was around us. It was always this effort to like suffocate us. But I grew up around all black folks from kindergarten all the way throughout my sophomore year. So I didn't have interracial connections and stuff. It was like we were all black. You know what I mean? We were all on the South Side of Chicago, which is still segregated. So it was just like, and I went to Dunbar High School. You know, if you know about Chicago, Dunbar is a school that we got grit. You know what I mean? We gonna battle. We battle tested at Dunbar. So I went there to play ball for a few years and my reality shifted at 15 when, you know, my mom, you know, who's a teen mom, her and my dad, both teenagers, 16 when they had my sister, 19 when they had me. Um, and, you know, my father, you know, developed a heroin addict at 16 years old. So that was just a struggle for our whole our whole life. And unfortunately, you know, he passed last year from a heroin overdose. So I'm not disconnected from the subjects we're talking about. Yes, drug use is important. We got to talk about it. At the same time, everybody is doing it. But the people they choose to focus on are the ones who do it in open air markets. So for me, I didn't know the, I didn't know this knowledge at 15. So I got in the game. I had an eighth of a kilo when I was 15 to weigh a whole bunch of drugs scale. And I was, um, and that's not to glamorize it because I definitely got regrets. It really hurt my mom. When I was 15, my mom was 34. So you got to understand she trying to figure out life. She trying to help my little brother who's seven years younger. We trying to figure it out. And she found the eighth of, eighth of a kilo in my room and uh, it broke her heart. Now, I was at the camp with the top ball players in Chicago for a full week. Charles Oakley even came out there like, Craig Hodges, how you think that shot got? <laughs> it was like, I got that shot right that year. But um, 
it was beautiful moments, but when she found those drugs, she sent me to Waterloo, Iowa. And that's why I experienced racism. Cause I didn't, it wasn't only racism, it was having the Chicago label too. So not only was I black, me being from Chicago made me even more um I don't know, I was different, but they they looked at it as like criminal. You know what I mean? I had a tattoo on my arm. This is 1994. So you talked about Biden and all of them. Think about the 1994 crime bill. It's drugs everywhere. My cousin, one of my cousins got sent to Minneapolis. Another one of my cousins got sent to Atterbury, Indiana in 94. I got sent to Waterloo, Iowa. It was like a, a great migration. So the drug stuff always impacted us. We just couldn't see it then. So long story short, because I know, you know, we got to get to um other questions, but I graduated on time. I was, um, you know, it's, it's like I had issues with white people who said the N word. I didn't, I didn't discriminate when it come down to like standing up for what I believed in. So people know me as being an activist from like kindergarten, man. I'm gonna keep it real with you. Like they don't separate or say I became an activist at any age because I've been like this since I was young. Graduated at 17, never failed a class in high school. Smoked weed throughout the whole shit. Got in trouble. Like, like, they always harassed me. They always said, Jason, come on, man. What are you doing? I was like, this just insinuate everything I do. If I'm playing ball, I'm, I'm on. If I'm doing this, I'm on. I wasn't seeing it as anything that was stopping me. But, um, you know, I had to temper it and stuff because, you know, they were criminalizing it. And it still is. You know, some people can do it and some people can't. So fast forward, I graduate and I just don't understand how I don't have any opportunities. I was definitely disappointed and I was living in my mom's basement in Chicago and I just said, I'm gonna move to Minnesota cause I'm getting caught up here. Like I'm losing my way. I worked at Target for six months and I was like, no, nah, this can't be my life. Came to Minnesota. I was only here three months. People pulled a gun on me. I grabbed a gun. I got to talk about all this next year cause the governor and the attorney general and the board of the whole board of pardons is going to have to decide if I deserve, deserve a pardon. So I'm just giving y'all like a preview. A guy pulled a gun on me and three of my friends. I got to have a gun the next few days. Ultimately the police just swarmed me. I got the gun. I'm 19 years old. I'm just too young to have it. I wasn't in pursuit. I wasn't going nowhere. I was at where I was staying. And they know this. So it was like, I ain't trying to go down there, but they did pull a gun on us. So I'm not going to act like they didn't do what they did either. So now, now I'm a felon. I didn't even plan to stay on. I didn't plan to stay living in Minnesota. That wasn't the plan. So now I'm a felon. So I'm even further down now. I'm tagged with that. I'm cold, whatever. So they proceed with caution. Minnesota gang strike force. If you don't know what it is, please look it up. They the same reason Phil Vance is in prison right now. Corrupt. They got disbanded. They doing all the stuff to me. Beating us up, tearing up our cars, urinating on our clothes, treating us terrible. And in the midst of that, they revoked my license for a cannabis charge. Now, the, the thing that's wild, they did this in the historic Rondo neighborhood. So if you ever heard of Rondo community, I stayed, you know, um, next to Maxfield School. So 
I'm driving with my friend. They pull us over. Now I'm, I'm a felon because I got the gun charge a year before. I'm 20 years old now and um, I'm taking care of my probation and I'm, you know, living my life or whatever. I'm in the car with my friend. We get pulled over. The same officer who peed on my clothes in the fall. He got an intern with him. He's still the commander right now, too. So, and he know I tell these stories. <laughs> but um, it was like, this dude was just ruthless. He said, who's going to claim the marijuana? I said, I got it. It's mine. He said, oh, okay, that was easy. All right, cool. Possession of marijuana in the moving vehicle. Cool. Then he started asking about other stuff. I'm like, man, can you please let us out of here? Like, come on, man. Like, please let us out this car. We get out the car. I pay the ticket the next week. This documented. So this is not just me saying this. This is documented. I go pay this charge. You want to know how much it was? $250 for something like this. A cigar. I said, oh, y'all dirty. I paid it, though. It's documented. I paid it. $250. Wow. <laughs> get back in the car. I'm driving. I feel good. I took care of it, right? Hey, you got possession of marijuana in the moving vehicle. Your license is actually revoked. Wow. You think if I knew that? I know ignorance isn't a defense. But if I knew that, I wouldn't have paid it and I would have took the system through a whole litany. I was trying to be honest. I was trying to be honest. Didn't work out for me. So I'm like, okay, cool. Revoke my license. They cut it. So now I got to get this other slip and do all of these things. And I'm like, no, nah, this ain't fair. I racked up six driving after revoke charges. I wasn't going to stop driving because I couldn't honor. Man, you know, people. some people say, just stop driving. It's like, man, I'm busy. I've never been somebody who just sit still and do nothing. Like, I'm active. And um, I had some hot cars, so they were pulling me over every, you know, every step of the way. And, um... I was in my hotel one night. I just came from the studio with my friend, made a song for my mom. I'm at a hotel in Roseville where I don't even live. And I'm just resting. Nobody's there with me. I took the cab, got dropped off with my buddy Mark Hester. Shout out Mark Hester. A good one, a real one. He took the cab to his house. I woke up that next morning to police in my room. Came in. I got drugs in my pocket. 40 months in prison. I never understood like why I was always like put me in the cage. No, I have no violence on my record. Yes, I got caught with a gun. I was harmed the week before, three days before. I was harmed. So it was like nobody was listening to that at first. Long story short, I come home after 40 months and I got shot up on university too in the midst of all of this. At the end of that year, with the marijuana charges and all of that stuff, I got shot. So it was like I was going through a lot in life and uh, it was looking bleak, man. But, you know, I bounced back, came home, went to Metro State. Uh, that was the bright light, became an organizer. Shout out to Chuck McDo, who supported, you know, may he rest in peace. He supported all my um, organizing. You know, shout out Sam Grant. You know, they made me an organizer. I met Angela Davis in 2004. I volunteered for her, actually. So I got to be around abolitionists who grounded me in this stuff. Julian Bond, Dr. Jawanza Kajufu. I brought a lot of people to, uh, 
Metro State. I hung out with Snick to about four o'clock in the morning. We were getting faded. Betty fights, Charles Gerard, all of us, Bob Moses. We kicked it in Gray Hall, but we really kicked it after we left there. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So it was like Marion Wright Edelman let me teach at Freedom School. So the movement really birthed me. So when the whole movement for Black Lives really started, it was like, I've been an organizer. I'm deep in restorative justice. I'm teaching now, you know, like at Metro State and found my way. And it was a lot of bumps along the way, but I found love. You know, I love my wife, Jeanette. She's a therapist and everything, doing her thing. Metro State alum. And our two babies are dope. You know, my 16-year-old taking college courses right now. So it's like things worked out, and I'm grateful for that. But it was some things that dinked me. That marijuana charge triggered so many things that didn't need to be. And I was just like, dang, man, you're going to let marijuana six driving charge I'm, but that day I didn't drive now think about that the day I got arrested I had no car in the parking lot <laughs> I had no car <laughs> I had no vehicle but it was like it didn't matter because I had drugs in my pocket so that's kind of my story but now today you know I got 14 years of teaching in love teaching at Hamlin it's dope I could be myself uh, I co-founded an organization called Rep, Relationships Evolving Possibilities. We showing up for community members on Friday and Saturday, and we try to be that group you call when you're in a tough situation. So it's a 10-year project. Grateful for the support we've had. Uh, we hiring so many people at this point, but it's dope because we bring in amazing people on the squad. I found co-found Humanize My Hoodie which John Legend gave me an award for that. So I'm just grateful, man. Super blessed because that time in that cage can, you know, destroy you. And I saw how white kids were going to treatment and we was getting incarcerated. I saw it and I didn't understand. I thought they were snitching. Until I studied criminal justice, I thought they were all snitching. I realized they had the, you know, they had the privilege on their side. Oh, yeah. Well, And it's the, like, you're, first off, you know, you have lived a, what I call an unintended journey with positive intentional results, right? Um, The impact that that journey is having, but it always has to happen in spite of, right? Right. And that motivates us. And it's, oh, I'm the, what about putting a little wind behind me? Right. Rather than the wind having to be the grind or fighting against, it would be great to get some of that same help. And at the end of the day, one of the pieces that you're pointing out and I wanted to talk about because you talked about your connections nationally, Dr. Davis and others. Right. Other states, Juanza in 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 Chicago, Dr. Kanjufu. Right. Talk a little bit about. The realities in Minnesota around legalization, because Minnesota is at this point, right? It's not just legalization, it's decriminalization. So can you talk about that and some of the lessons learned from other states, other municipalities that have legalized recreational marijuana that Minnesota is trying to implement, what you are seeing happen and what you wish would happen in addition to what is already on tap in Minnesota? Yeah, I think everybody buzzing because they feel like it's a new economy. You know how that is. Like, everybody like, oh, I could do this. I could do that. Um, But 
you know, they're trying to get the office all established for 2024 so it could be up and running 2025. So it's a long process. So it's not like next week, everybody, you're going to see a bunch of dispensaries pop up. You know, they're not even like really at the point to really decide where. And I'm just getting this from from other people because I definitely be locked in. I'm not as involved as some people I know are. So I'm just giving it to you how I get it. So since they, you know, legalized it August 1st, I know Red Lake, <laughs> they they cracking out there. They solid. You know, I think they figuring out some kind of mobile stuff right now. Like they well ahead of other people because they already, you know, um, can like sell cannabis. But what I hear is you can have eight plants in your home. I don't know the metrics on how many can be budding at once versus how many you know, uh, can't be. I just hope people are being safe and not trying to be reckless and go over the limit. And I worry about what the enforcement is going to be on that stuff. You know what I mean? Like, so I'm always looking ahead a few steps to say, okay, how are they going to regulate this if they pull somebody over? So I'm more in the practical day-to-day -day end of it because if people don't know and everybody is saying, hey, it's legal, you know, like it's legal, it's legal. But then it's like, oh, yeah, it's not legal when you drive it. It's not legal when you're doing this. It's not. That's right. Those nuances will get people incarcerated when they thought, you know, it worked one way. It's like black codes. So it's like they going to let certain people do certain things. But the enforcement and the public safety of it all is what I'm concerned about. So, That's right. yeah, I'm grateful that people can be able to, like, you know, tap into a new market. But it's like. Are people being healthy? What kind of water are you using for your plants? You know, it's like, are we think looking at this from a health standpoint? Because I know, like for me, I want people to be healthier. Or if I if I could have a a strain that likes <laughs> makes you have the vibes I have, you know what I mean, or make you feel like mm -hmm. you know just joyful and just like you could do your best work. That's kind of like what I want to see. So you know, I just want people to have like standards on it and stuff because. If it's just about money, 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 white people are going to continue to like significantly advance and there's not yeah. going to be equity in this. And it's like if many of us have been incarcerated and had these hardships because of cannabis, it would be right for some of us to be able to be involved yeah. in what it's like. So. I don't know. I don't know if people are ready for a conversation like that. I'm saying well, that. and and that's the piece, and that's the piece that you are alluding to, right? Because from what I know, okay, Minnesota's legislature back a couple of years ago mistakenly legalized a certain amount of edibles, right? Yep. It was a mistake. <laughs> they were trying to regulate, you know, uh, CBD right? Delta nine, I think, and re and made a mistake. And in the loophole that regulated or deregulated in certain doses, cannabis, as well as in certain doses. So then when the state comes in and says, okay, we're going to not only legalize recreational marijuana, but we're going to decriminalize the people who have been convicted on drug marijuana convictions. One of the pieces that I think is interesting in Minnesota and even in Chicago, you know, states like California and Washington, what they did is they legalized and cookies and the corporate entities and capitalism took over. So the communities that were harmed the most by calling one thing drugs and other things recreational use for decades, like you're talking about your story, um, those communities got no benefit of anything. 
Yeah. Right. And they were still because then when I'm just picking on cookies, but when the corporate entities come in and they, you know, create corporate marijuana dispensaries, the reality is you still got underground black market because the black and brown folks that are poor can't yeah. they can't buy weed there. They're just like, well, I still got to get it from the weed man. And yeah. so you still had those pieces. And I think what Chicago has opened the door to and Minnesota has learned from in some ways yeah. is the state of Minnesota and by creating and what you're talking about, if the people aren't in Minnesota, Red Lake is the Red Lake Nation. And so the yep. Red Lake Nation is the first to be granted under the commission, the ability to sell and distribute the nation. It's Minnesota. If anybody should get to do it first, it should be the nation. So these nations have this ability and they are, Minnesota is doing a slow rollout by creating this commission, which Jason pointed out, which will be up and rolling in about 2024. But the commission's job is to ensure that there's a certain percentage of Minnesota grown, a certain percentage of locally owned dispensaries, that it isn't it doesn't become the Wild West, that it's the actual people from the communities that benefit from it. And the intentionality that's happening in Minnesota is something that it's gonna be interesting to see if the intentionality can um, control the greed. Because the reality, like you said, rich folks, wealthy folks, the man, you you gonna have to have a lot of control of that to ensure that regular old Jason or Adam, if we want, plants in our house, if we want to get together and co-op and start a dispensary ourselves for our own community, we should be able to do that. Minnesota is working to stop that, but the fear is capitalism is capitalism is capitalism in this country, and it's so evil that the people always end up being shoved aside. Can you talk a little bit about what do you know about Minnesota's decriminalization? of marijuana offenses. I know it's something that Waltz talks about, the governor, the state talks about. What, what do you know about that? And what are some of the realities? Because the truth is you may have, you may decriminalize and expunge the marijuana stuff. Let's say it's on your record, but you yeah. have all this other stuff that's a result of. Does that yeah. make sense? Talk yeah. about that, bro. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I don't even want to call them collateral consequences, but absolutely. You know, it's like, it's on your record for when you're going for a home. It's on your record when you're trying to get a job. It's on like, so decriminalization, like even when you decriminalize something, the disparities still exist. Mm -hmm. So I want to be clear, like, e like even when it's decriminalized, black and brown folks and other people of a color are still going to have more surveillance. They're going to have more. So that's what I try to like, really highlight because it's not going to be like oh yeah those kids in the park they just smoking some marijuana i want to see it in, in real time i don't know what the governor is talking about i i don't want people to like drop their guards i want people to know their rights so my thing is there got to be a push for more political education around this where it's like what are the rules and i'm supporting marcus harkis it's like for marcus he was a part of all the legislation he was trying to you know he was he was very active, you know what I mean? And it was like, I support him as he try to have conversations on a deeper level about this because I would hate for people to have, what is it, 200 grams on them, two ounces, and be walking down the street. And it's like, they all roughed up and go through this whole thing if they got cannabis, but a white kid having the same amount. It's like, 
you think about with with the wall like with the wall drugs and we still in it like we haven't really you know gotten out of the wall drugs but it was like one gram look it this don't even sound right <laughs> like one gram of crack could equal a hundred grams like like if you really wrap your mind around how devastating that is i don't see them doing the different on i mean even dwis anytime they regulate something i don't trust them because it's the same entity it's the same people so my thing is decriminalizing it saying whatever they say i don't even think the police on the ground are keeping up with what the laws say so think about that you think they all keeping up with oh if they got this they i don't think they doing all of that <laughs> i think they doing what they do so that's what i worry about the most so it, it kind of scares me you know because when you saying it's legal it's legal it's legal but if you still see people in a certain area code get hmm. dinked for it or being like you know even stopped for it like they shouldn't even be stopped for it if it's legal but i'm pretty yeah. sure if we look at the data if you're you over it, north you're gonna be stopped if you're in eden prairie you're gonna be fine now, if you're brown and even, right? And I think one of the things, and it reminds me of this, I live, I spent 10 years in Rockford, Illinois. Oh, yeah. And I worked for the mayor in Rockford, okay? Rockford yeah. rough now. I mean, there's just nothing, right? But we came and, out there one time and balled. We came out there and balled <laughs> out in Rockford, man. It was a team with, like, Iowa State colors. They were, they were, they might have been Oh, Jefferson, Rockford. Jefferson Jayhawk. Man, we came through that. Yeah. So yeah. I know a little about Rockford. So I coached uh, jun junior college football. And so JUCOs, and this was before Last Chance U. So nobody knew that JUCOs had the best athletes. They just didn't qualify because they were, yeah. you know, we had half a Dunbar that went to Rock yeah. Valley, right? Between us and Harper and COD and, and Joliet. Okay. And so, but we had all these guys from Florida. Too, yeah. because back then Florida didn't have JUCO football. It was the Kansas, Iowa, North Dakota League, and then it was the Illinois, Michigan League, right? Sure. And so what was happening was we had some of our guys from Florida, and we were um, some of the guys were going to see a buddy on what was the east side of Rockford. So every community has a east or a west or a north or a south. Well, they were going, no, the west side, I'm sorry. They were going to the west side, which was the so-called tougher side. And so they went to go see a friend, but in Florida, you go to the rough neighborhood, you just take your gun with you, right? I mean, yeah. I live in Kentucky. So yeah. one of my guys just takes his gun. Now it's his gun, he owns the gun, it's Register to him all the pieces as much as you have to register a gun in Florida. So I'm working for the mayor. I find out they get pulled over. The police say to the guys, you know, is anybody, anybody have a weapon? He says, well, yeah, my, I got my gun <laughs> because you're from Florida, right? And so the player says this and you get arrested and it's all this big old thing. But he was doing something that was culturally normal to him. His yeah. mother taught him, you go into the hood, bring your gun. You yeah. don't know what these people over here, bring your gun. And in his community, like you're put bringing out, when that is normal and that is legal and that is everyday life, that you walk around with your gun. I mean, when we moved 
Jason, when we moved to Alabama, my wife and I, at this point, we lived in Akron, Ohio, and we moved to Tuscaloosa. And I am in the middle of Dick Sporting Goods, and they have AR-15s in the back of me. And you can just walk in and buy it with, you barely need a driver's license, get an AR-15, all the ammo you want. First time I thought ever about owning a handgun was I was like, is it this easy? And so the reality is that you're bringing up is that people need to know that the rules, what the rules are, what the laws are, um, and how those laws are applied differently in different communities. For sure. Right? Differential treatment. It's, it's definitely differential. And also, you think about news reporting of criminal stories or crime, public safety. Are they going to stop saying, hey, and it was cannabis in the car? Cause you don't, you're not going to say that if it's alcohol in the car. So it's like, watch for that too. So it's like, I'm always watching how they sensationalize stories. Are they going to stop? So decriminalization should include that too. The news media should know, Hey, don't even say that this person had cannabis in a bag. Why? If it's legal. So those are the parts of decriminalization. I want people to watch for. It's like, we got to push back. If those things are mentioned during like, segments on the news like and the officers did say they smelled some cannabis no nah. it's legal <laughs> like like so that's the decriminalization because it's like no matter what the laws are you could still create moral panic around it you could still say no nah, they were so high out their mind because i see how people people who were who always against it and some people don't want to be wrong think about all those teachers that bothered me in high school I could go, I could go around to all of them and say, my French teacher who I know loved me, I could say, Madam Griffin, remember you used to always <laughs> ask me why I do cannabis and all that? You said I, you know, I'm gonna have troubles in life and all this stuff. She might say, you will. It, it, that's like, some people not gonna acknowledge that they were wrong about it. And I see that being a part of the conversation that we need to have, too. It's like, now is not the time to have a grudge over the thing. It's happening. You were wrong at some point. You put all these projections. So I want people to be healthy, too. And I want people to be able to still practice sobriety. I hope, you know, having this conversation don't trigger somebody who's trying to live a sober life to want to be a part of this, too. So I want to I want us to be cognizant of that, too, while we're excited about the benefits for the people who flourish with cannabis. And think about, you know, the people who are still trying to get their sobriety That's and right. a you know, sober life and all of that together, too. Well, and because you know this, I live in the same state where 95% of the bourbon in the world comes from. We get wow. people all around the world who come to the Kentucky Bur Bourbon Trail and see Maker's Mark and see Woodford Reserve and see Buffalo Trace and see all the things. And it's just folksy in Kentucky and people buy bourbon barrels. And that's great, right? Yeah. But that's seen as culture. Marijuana yeah. is seen as criminal, right? Yeah. And we have to acknowledge, just like with privilege, we have to not, if we're going to acknowledge a privilege or an underprivilege, we have to acknowledge, acknowledge the opposite, right? That we, we're just, we've been played. Nancy Reagan standing up with Mr. T on TV talking about as an 80s kid, just say no to drugs and that marijuana was drugs and bourbon wasn't. Yeah. And marijuana was drugs, but oxycodone wasn't. 
Marijuana was drugs, but Xanax wasn't. And all of those things have roots in racism, anti-Blackness, capitalism, and colonialism. And when we start there, because it wasn't about just criminalizing the drug, criminalizing the drug was about criminalization of the people. Absolutely. That's the piece. Okay, and that's where Nixon started the whole game by saying, I want to criminalize hippies. I want to criminalize black folks because we got it. Black Panthers are driving me crazy, all this movement. So what we got to do is make those people criminals. So let's find the drugs they do and make those illegal, war on drugs. Then we send them to prison. They can't vote. And the Chicanos the same way, right? Because Fred Hampton, South Side of Chicago, Rainbow Coalition with Fred, That yeah. scared Nixon out of his mind. Of course. And then the same playbook keeps happening with, with Clinton and with Reagan and all the rest of them. Can you talk a little bit about the drug convictions in Minnesota? What do you know about expunging the convictions of marijuana from people's records? Because yeah. that's what they're saying. That's what yeah. I'm hearing. You yeah. talked about honestly and openly your, your stuff. Yeah. So has anybody called you, bro, and said, look, we're going to take that <laughs> marijuana stuff off your record. Um, and what does that look like? What are you hearing? What are you hearing on the ground? Um, yeah, I'm hearing people, you know, are trying to get their paperwork right and see what the legalities are around it. But I don't know. You know, Maureen Ayanlobi, who's in prison, she's writing up a lot of expungement for folks now. You know what I mean? She's incarcerated. She's serving life. But, you know, she's doing the expungement work. <laughs> so shout out to Maureen, for real. Um, I think, you know, everybody's trying to get their paperwork right and decide what to go for, right? Some people are saying, I want to put an application in the conviction review unit through the attorney general's office. That's my pathway. Some people are saying, no, nah, I could go to a legal clinic, put in my expungement work with this uh, pro bono attorney who at this nonprofit might go to the legal rights center. Yeah. The legal rights center. They might go there and get an expungement. Uh, it's people who do expungement clinics and stuff like that. For me, the thing I want to go for is the pardon. It's like, I don't want to get pulled over it. And it just shows stuff. I like, I was 19. Look, think about when my quote unquote criminal history started. I was not, I had just turned 19. It was three weeks after my 19th birthday. So I still was a teenager. I was still very young. 19 years old to what 26 that's the last interaction i had so from those years is when i had interaction in and out of prison different facilities workhouse time year in jail but it's like you look at from 28 to 45 nothing and it's like how much is enough so i want to go for a pardon so when i get pulled over they'll still see the felonies, but it will say pardoned on there. And hopefully that'll, you know, keep me breathing because, you know, you never know. So it's bigger for me than just getting something expunged because, like, I still really got to live my life. And anytime I'm pulled over, depending on who it is, it's a possibility, you know, uh, I cannot make it back home. So, so it's real like that. So everybody going for whatever paperwork they can to say, okay, if it's legal... And it's people in prison for cannabis. So it's like, how do you bring them home? They should be prioritized. If somebody's in prison right now for a bunch of weed at any point, what do you do when it's legal? So if we could prioritize the people behind the wall, 
who had any kind of cannabis charge or had any kind of enhancements for cannabis, where they had a gun charge, but the cannabis elevated it, you should be able to go back and say, no, take that elevated time off or take that elevated charge off at this point. But, you know, a lot of people don't like admitting when they wrong either. So that's why I don't, you know, uh, depend on getting liberation from this, but being aware and understanding how the 13th Amendment still works, because even they, we could do all of these things here, but that 13th Amendment still says slavery exists. It still says that. So with all of what's happening, we got to keep our eyes on the prize, man, because I'm worried about these babies, 17, 18, who trying to understand, okay, you got to be 21. You sure? They doing it like this over here. We got to be the ones to be able to say, hey, these are the rules to this. Stay in bounds. Go under the bounds. <laughs> you know what I mean? Go below the bounds so you're safe in this stuff. Because, like I say, ignorance, you know, it's not a defense. And I don't want a lot of people to, you know, take a major loss, you know, uh, due to what they felt would be more liberation. Well, and your point is so right about people, brothers, sisters who are locked up because of a marijuana conviction. The challenge is the entanglement. I don't want to sound like I'm red table talk, but the, <laughs> the entanglement, bro, of because it starts with that. It starts with, oh, you're driving in the neighborhood and your music and the police pull you over. Because I, I, yeah. I served on a grand jury back hmm, 18 months ago. And I went in saying, if it's anything to do with weed, I'm not voting for it. I'm just going to let everybody, I'm in Kentucky. I said, I am from Minneapolis. I am yeah. not going to do that. So um, because the roots of that are just bull. And there were, I can't tell you the number of cases we got that started with the officer pulled someone over and they smelled marijuana. Yeah. So did they smell yeah. bourbon? Did they smell millegenuine draft? I mean, so the yeah. realities are, is there so much that emanates from that, that even if you take away the root in the case, oh, we're going to take away this, we're going to pardon you for the marijuana conviction, but are you going to pardon me from the violation of being on paper that I had because of the marijuana conviction, right? Well, no, right? Oh, so all you're going to do is take the marijuana away, but you're not going to take, well, I had to protect myself, so I had to have a gun. Or because yeah. I was caught up in the system, it led to, right, as you're talking yeah. about with Michelle Alexander, the the criminal incarceration and that, that is the system. That's exactly Absolute, right. a racial caste system where it was like, made it look like it was us. Where it was like, we the ones who bad because we messing with this stuff. Who was bringing it into the neighborhoods if right. we don't know planes? So that's why I'm like, you wiped out my whole generation. You wiped out the people like my father's age by them being addicted to it made us, my generation experienced fatherlessness. I think we're probably the first generation that experienced fatherlessness. So it's like, how can they really repair this stuff? We've been <laughs> enslaved. Like that, that cannabis charge should have never triggered revocation of my license. I wasn't even driving. So how, so how do you repair that? I wasn't even the one behind the wheel. So it's like... And that cannabis charge that you had would have, if it was um, 
a fifth of OE, right? Or it was a 40 or it was, um, you know, the purple bag, right? And some crown, you would have been fine. But I could have had a it, box of alcohol. I could have had a box. Yeah. I could have had a whole, look, look, yeah. I could have had a whole box of alcohol and it wouldn't have been, I could have had a crate. Like, like if I need to, I keep ratcheting it up. This didn't make no sense. So it's like, how do you really repair that? Because it led to going to prison. Think about that. I wasn't even driving when they contacted me. They ran and, and my- you, you send, you send a smart, intelligent community activist minded leader to prison and thank God that you are the man you are now. But the reality that happens is you put a brother in a cage, your mentals, your emotionals, your spirituals, all your physicals, all those things are tested. You have to become something different. It's a war zone, right? And you did that solely because you wanted to criminalize the people. Jason, I just, I thank you for your time. Appreciate I appreciate it. you for your work, brother. Um, I laud you for everything that you continue to do more than anything. Um, I can tell because I have grandbabies, you are the kind of husband, father, and man that the world and, and your family needs you to be. Then everything, everything emanates from there. When you Absolutely. are lighting up, talking about your wife and your, and your kids, Bro, that is everything. So I just thank you for your work. I thank you for being you. And, and obviously I thank you for, for the time and sharing community with us today. Thanks so much. Likewise, for thanks for having me, fam. Same to you, man. I reciprocate that same kind of love for you, for what you do and how you grind it. So respect. I appreciate you, bro. We'll stay, we'll, we'll stay connected. Thank you so much. Peace. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to this episode of Get Uncomfortable. Get Uncomfortable is produced in partnership between me, Rachel Hansen, and Adam Smith. If you want to hear more from Adam, visit his website, hearadamspeak.com, where you can book him to speak at your organization and hear more about what he has to say about what we talk about here on the show. Now, if you want to support the show itself, there are a variety of ways that you can do that. You can leave us a review anywhere you listen to podcasts, send us an email, or share an episode with a friend. Until next time, stay uncomfortable.